If you'd like to join me in Matthew chapter 23, beginning at verse 25, I apologize with the notes, that's a typo, it's not 25 to 16, it's 25 and 26. I've tried a lot of different things preaching, but I've never tried preaching backward, so that's not today. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. So I, I know you're used to hearing this, but the, the woes that Jesus pronounces are judgments against the scribes and the Pharisees and those who commit these sins. A woe is a terrible thing. A woe is a cry of anguish. It is a declaration of a judgment to come upon these men. Now what we see here is Jesus uses a, a, a partial metaphor. When he describes them, he describes them metaphorically that they, um, they are, are like cups and dishes that only have the outsides washed. That's speaking of their behavior and their appearance, how they act. He drops the metaphor when he talks about the true state of their hearts and souls and minds, that they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. So on the outside, the scribes and the Pharisees give every indication of being godly, every indication of being righteous and impressive but on the inside they're just as dead and rebellious as any sinner can be uh, the gospels frequently describe this uh, we we are uh, pushing 150 sermons within a few weeks we'll be there and uh, throughout the gospels we've seen that the scribes and the pharisees are obsessed with their with their appearance they treated religion as performance art. It was something to be done. Uh, just last week, we saw that they tithed on uh, herbs from their garden, but ignored the internal qualities that God requires, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Um, the, the interesting thing about these men is that, well, we'll, we'll get there. In, in Matthew 6, Jesus talks about giving and praying and fasting and warns us not to be like the Pharisees. In verse 2, he says, Therefore, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be glorified by men. They've had their reward in full. In verse 5, he says, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. They have had their reward in full. And then verse 16, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men. I, they have had their reward in full. It struck me this week that the, this external religion of the scribes and the Pharisees and virtually all human religion requires an audience. It requires a human audience. Somebody has to see what you're doing. Uh, social media has, has created this interesting 
phenomena where people now feel free to avoid any type of a gathering because now they can simply proclaim and perform online. But it's still performance. Uh, I've, I've been a musician much longer than I've been a pastor and a preacher. I started with learning trumpet when I was in junior high school, played trumpet in junior high and high school, and got a guitar and taught myself that, and, and got a bass, taught myself that, and taught myself piano, and I'm, you, know, you can hear I'm still learning. Um, I, I've been on worship teams. I've led worship in every church I pastored and was involved in, in leading worship as a, an unpaid vocation, really, before pastoral ministry. And then in addition to that, I've played in dance bands. And there's, there's something that is true about every musical event, whether it is a worship service, whether it's a dance, or whether it's a concert. And that is, especially when you're, you're playing with a band, when you're playing with a group, and everything is clicking, there are few things as good as that. You've got this conversation going on where you're contributing, you're responding to what other people are doing, and it's just absolutely marvelous. But it is an art form that as soon as you stop the song, the art's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. It's not sculpture. It's not painting. Where when you're, when you're done, you've got something you can hang on the wall. When you're done playing music live, the art is over. Well, that's what these men are doing. They're using religion as performance art, as, as every religionist does today. For those who are involved in, in the Mormon church or the watchtower, they are performing for others to see them. They only know if they're doing it right because others say you're ticking off the checkboxes. The religion of the, the scribes and the Pharisees was a spectator, support, a spectator sport. And all they ever received was the applause for that act. That's all they got. When they had performed the act put on the show, and when the people had applauded, what did the people do? Well, they turned to look to see who else was performing. And that, that man who had just gone to all of this effort for the applause, having received the applause, is just as empty as he was before. I want you to think about this. The resources of God are as infinite as he is. So thinking about Jesus' words in Matthew 6, when you give, God has infinite ways to bless you. When you pray, he has infinite ways to answer. When you fast, he has infinite ways to strengthen you and fill up your life. We offer these little things to him. And then he magnifies his response to us so that there's simply no comparison to what we give or what we pray or how we fast and his response to us. They can't even be compared. But the scribes and Pharisees are working for a brief murmur of approval. And when the murmur falls silent, it's all gone. And they receive nothing from God. They receive nothing for giving. They receive nothing for praying. They receive nothing for fasting. The preacher of Ecclesiastes had it right. It was just trying to grasp 
the wind. The eagles had it right, too. There's always a new kid in town. And so there's constant competition. Jesus says that they are blind. You blind Pharisee. What are they blind to? Well, they're, they're blind because of, for all their outward appearances, they're inwardly as wretched and as dead as any sinner. Inside, they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. And they're blind to that. <coughs> robbery means taking something from someone by intimidation, force, or violence. Self-indulgence means lacking self-restraint or self-control and instead living with reckless abandon, especially where bodily appetites are concerned. Food, alcohol, sex is how that word is used in, in Scripture. And Jesus doesn't say, as he looks in their hearts, he sees largely good hearts, well-intentioned hearts, pretty much godly hearts with little specks of robbery and self-indulgence. He says, you're full. You're so full of robbery and self-indulgence, there's no room for anything else. That was every motivation that they had. So the picture is of men who appear to be utterly in control and disciplined on the outside, but inside are, are filled with every sort of wicked fleshly desire. And they only maintain an illusion of control and discipline on the outside because it satisfies their wicked desire for human approval and praise. So stop for a moment. Let's highlight this point. See, the devil has invented a game, and we love to play this game. You've played it. I've played it. The, the game is called think, but don't act. And what it says is only actions and behaviors are good or bad or holy or sinful. Thoughts and ideas and concepts are neutral. So you can think what you want. You can imagine what you want and you're home free. Just don't do it. If that were true, there would only be nine commandments. There wouldn't be a tenth commandment that says you shall not covet. If that were true, Jesus would not have said that anger and hatred are equal to murder and that lust is equal to adultery. God does judge our thoughts. He does judge our impulses. Somebody had asked me, and to be honest, I don't remember who it was. It's been a number of weeks. But somebody says, so is that sinful impulse sin? And I can't remember what I said, but I hope I said yes. Where is it written that sin must be deliberate to be sin? Even the Old Testament offers sacrifices for unintentional sins. So that flash of annoyance, that flash of anger, that look of desire comes from a sinful heart and a sinful nature that God judges. God judges the hearts and he weighs the motives. And so Jesus says the heart must be cleansed. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside may be clean as well. The problem is nobody can change their heart. Remember, he's not talking about tableware. He's talking about us. Nobody can cleanse their heart. I use Jeremiah 13, 23 all the time. You probably have it memorized. 
Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? If they can, then you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. The idea is that we are no more able to do good than a person of color can change the color of their skin or an animal can change its nature and design. So I won't quote that this morning because I quote it all the time. Instead, I'll quote Job 14.4. Job asks and answers, who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. What human agency or power can take an unclean person and make them clean? No one. You can't cleanse yourself. I can't cleanse you. Pastors can't cleanse you. Elders can't cleanse you. The church can't can't cleanse you. Sacraments can't cleanse you. Baptism can't cleanse you. It's not going to happen. The Pharisees thought that they were righteous, but they were utterly unrighteous. They thought that a good deed made a bad person good, but the opposite is true. A bad person makes the best deeds evil and filthy rags. I, I went through this Thursday night at the jail, and I read this verse from Matthew fifteen nineteen: For out of the heart... Come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false witness, and slanders. And I, and I said to the men that I had there that night, if you've done these things, it's because that's what you are. The jail is a place where you, you, you learn how innocent people are. I think I've only met one person in doing jail ministry who said, yep, I did it. The, the rest are there because it's the wrong person or they got the wrong guy or they didn't do it. Or, But I just said, this is true. If you've done these things, it's because this is who you are. This is how you are. So if you want to write down a little saying, here, here it is. I'll repeat it for you. We are not what we do. We do what we are. We are not what we do. We do what we are. A wicked person is not justified by doing good deeds. Instead, good deeds are made wicked by the wicked person doing them. We are not what we do. We do what we are. So to sum up the scribes and the Pharisees, they're blind to their sinful state. They assume that only their behavior mattered, only their actions mattered, that what was on the inside was okay. And three... And I think that this follows from what what Jesus is saying. They assumed that God's judgment exactly agreed with their own. They agreed that God's holiness exactly agreed with theirs. So if they looked at something and said that was good, God said it it was good. If they looked at something and said that's evil, God said it was evil. God's judgment agreed perfectly with their own, which is not true, of course. So what about us then? I'm splitting this in, into two parts. As I've been saying, as we, as we began in verse 13 with the woes in this chapter, Jesus doesn't give us the positive alternative. He just gives us the negative in this. He doesn't really need to give us the positive alternative. For one thing, he'd been with his disciples for three years. He didn't need to repeat the positive side. Second, we have all the scripture to refer to. So what about us? Well, those of us who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus have been reconciled to God the Father through God the Son and have been filled by the Holy Spirit. We've been born again. We've been regenerated. We've been adopted. 
but our hearts are still out of our reach. We don't have any more ability than, uh, than an unbeliever to change our hearts or to fix our hearts. It's not possible for us. Our arms are not that long. We can't reach them. The most we can do on our own is behavior modification. <coughs> True sanctification has to be accomplished by the Holy Spirit. We can seek that, we can pray for that, but we can't accomplish it. God has to do that. I want you to remember this. The difference between Christians and non-Christians is never behavioral. It's never behavioral. There are unbelievers who are much better people than many Christians from a worldly point of view. They're nicer. They're more polite. They're kinder. They're more patient. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that a Christian is a sinner who has been regenerated by the grace of God, received the gift of faith, and on the basis of that gift of faith, confesses sin, repents, and lives in new obedience. Worships God. That's the difference. So if our works are not any better, then what assurances do we have? What hope do we have? Well, I'm going to give you three assurances and then follow those up with two points of application. The first assurance is that we are assured of forgiveness in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So catch that. We are not forgiven according to our sins. He doesn't say we have the forgiveness of our transgressions according to our need. We have forgiveness of our transgressions according to the richness of his grace. As, as wicked as we can be, as fallen as an unbeliever can be, they have a finite amount of wickedness. We're finite creatures. But God's grace is infinite. And he overwhelms our, our sin and our wickedness with the infinite nature of his grace. So we're not forgiven this far and no farther. We're not forgiven according to what seems reasonable. We're forgiven according to the riches of his grace, which is new every morning. Jesus died for sinners once for all time, and he will never die again. In a, in a previous church during communion, a, a, another man leading communion made the comment when, when we sin and confess our sin, God goes back in time and puts our sin on Jesus. If that were true, Jesus would never have gotten off the cross. That's just not true. I'm not sure why it even is a desirable picture. I suppose it satisfied some kind of an emotional need. But really what it does is, is say, so don't you feel bad? Don't you feel terrible? for doing that to him all over again? He thought he was done. No, he died, when he died that death on Friday, that Friday so many centuries ago, he resolved the issue of all guilt for all of God's people throughout all of history. We have the assurance of forgiveness in Jesus Christ because he has died once and for all time. Second, we're assured of security in Christ. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, Jesus says, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out, John 6, 37. I urge you to read John 17 sometime in the next day or two. It's, it's Jesus 
grand, holy, high priestly prayer. And the majority of that prayer has to do with keeping, with preservation. So Jesus asks the Father to preserve all that the Father has given him. Jesus says, while I was with them, I kept them. And now I ask that you would keep them, Father. And then he asks the Father to include all of those who would believe through their testimony. So Jesus has prayed for you that the Father would keep you, that the Father would preserve you. He has prayed that all of his disciples throughout time would be one, would be perfected in unity, joined with him and the Father in in eternal, unbreakable fellowship. There's not a single time in the Gospels where Jesus goes to his disciples and says, guys, I sure hope you don't fall away. Please don't betray me. Please, please find the strength to stick, stay the course. There's not a single time in the Gospels when Jesus goes to them and warns that they could just fall away in the twinkling of an eye. Instead, what we see in the Gospels is the theme of his protective power and his keeping power. He keeps exactly those whom the Father gave him. And he refuses to throw us away. And we have the assurance that we will never be cast away. And third, we are assured that the Father is going to perfect us. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That last phrase is important. Paul doesn't say, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. Because if you were like me, I know you're not like me, but if you were like me, you'd be saying, well, is he still perfecting it? Has he given up? Has he perfected it and this is perfect? This is what I get. I have to endure this for eternity. Instead, Paul says, the Father is going to do this work until the day of Christ Jesus. So being interpreted, if the Lord returns before you die, you'll be perfected. If you die before he returns, you'll be perfected. The Father's work of perfecting his people won't stop until the day of judgment. It won't stop until there are no more people to perfect. To be a Christian at all is to be sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says that the Spirit is a seal who guarantees the inheritance that we have been promised. How do you know that you'll receive the inheritance that's been promised? You were given the Holy Spirit. Oh, how do you know that you've got the Holy Spirit? You trust in Jesus and you love his word and you're growing to love his people and you're growing to hate your sin and to walk more faithfully with him. And you can see the signs in your life of salvation. You can see faith in your life at times when before you wouldn't have trusted. Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith not just the author he didn't just start it and hand it to you and say here see what you can do with this he began it and he will finish it and by the way the fact that it says that jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith tells us that there's a process there's a beginning and then there's a culmination 
Otherwise, it would simply be, he's the author of our faith, and our faith's perfect. It's just what it should be, and it'll never change. Instead, he began it, and he will bring it to perfection. So we have the assurance that God's sanctifying and glorifying work in us will be perfectly completed. We have the assurance of forgiveness. We have the assurance of security, and we have the assurance of glorification. So then, how do we live today? Well, we, we live unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. We don't follow their model. The first thing is that we confess without fear. We must face the truth of our sins and our guilt with peace and confidence and confess without fear of rejection. I very deliberately said we must confess, not we can There's not a place in scripture where God says, you know, if you want to, you could confess. He commands it. He commands that we agree with him, which is what confession is. But he commands that we confess without fear because of his loving kindness. It'd be nicer It'd be softer. It it certainly would fit, fit in with the spirit of the current age to say that God invites us. But he doesn't. He commands us. And he commands us to not fear. He doesn't command us to do the impossible. Tragically, the scribes and the Pharisees and people like them have to pretend that they're godly because they have no hope of grace. The Mormon view of grace is that God's grace steps in when you have done all that you can do. Have you ever done all that you can do with anything? So no one can be saved. All that you can do simply becomes an emotional idiom. It's meaningless. They don't believe that A faithful confession is going to be heard. They believe that they have to come up with schemes to deal with their own sin. So they redefine sin, as Robert Shuler did many years ago, from that which offends God to that which hurts you. Your sin is what hurts you. Well, that's a huge redefinition. And then they redefine the holiness of God so that God is not holy and above and apart and unlike us, but that God is very much like us in our best moment. The result of all of that is that a sinful act either isn't sinful at all, which is becoming more and more common in our time, or else it can be canceled out by good works. Or maybe a little time in purgatory. But all of that's blasphemy. All of that is blasphemy. Why must we confess our sins without fear? Because God has promised. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God has promised. We confess to him because he is faithful and righteous. If we confess with fear, then we're saying, I'm not sure if he's faithful. 
I'm not sure if he's righteous. Maybe he'll break his promise to me. We must confess our sins without fear because Jesus has died. Romans 4.25 says, Jesus is he who was delivered over because of our, or on account of our transgressions and was raised up on account of our justification. So why did Jesus die on the cross? Because of our sins. Why did Jesus rise from the dead? Because we were forgiven. This is one of the strongest pieces of evidence that Jesus did not die to make salvation possible. He died to save. There comes a time in our lives when the Spirit of God calls us and we step into faith. He gives us faith. He gives us life. We're joined to God and we begin to walk with him. We're creatures of time. So it has to take place at a moment in time. But Jesus has already answered every sin. So if we only confess our sins with fear and uncertainty, we are either accusing the Father of being unfaithful and unrighteous, or else we're accusing Jesus of not atoning for every sin. And we dare then to accuse God of being like us. And he's not. Long before Jesus died for sins, Dakota read it this morning in Psalm 32, verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. And my iniquity I did not cover up. I said I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. A thousand years before Jesus died. <laughs> Excuse me. A thousand years before Jesus died. David had the confidence to say, I confessed my sins and you forgave. No sacrifice. No burnt offering. I confessed and you forgave. A thousand years before Christ, David knew that God would forgive him if he confessed. How much more should we know that God will forgive now that his son has died and we actually know how he brought it about? So we can confess and we must confess our sins without fear. The second point of application is that we must repent and live holy. We must repent of our sins and turn to Jesus to empower us to live in holiness. So I did it again. I said must instead of can, and that's the truth. Jesus says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He didn't say, you know, it'd be great. If you could just be perfect, that, that'd be great. He says you are to be. That's the goal. That's the mark. At the end of 2 Corinthians 6, Paul speaks of a, a glorious promise of God. The Lord says, come out from their midst and be separate and do not touch what is unclean. And I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. And then in the first verse of chapter 7, Paul gives us the application. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Well, we can't do this on our own. We can't, uh, we can't cleanse ourselves or perfect holiness in the fear of God without the promises. 
specifically the promises that God has already done all of the heavy lifting by his son and by his spirit. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. But you can't cleanse your hands or purify your hearts if you won't draw near to God. Because when we do that, God does the heavy lifting of cleansing us and purifying us and teaching us to live in holiness. And our response is not to take away our own sin. Our response is to confess it, turning to him in repentance so that we may be cleansed. We should become imitators of Paul. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. So to be imitators of Paul... Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, which he's talking specifically about all the so-called good things in his life, but certainly the sins, forgetting what lies behind and pressing on to what lies ahead, he says, I press on toward the goal, the finish line. He's describing a race. And he says, I can see the finish line in front of me, and I press on toward that finish line for the prize. The prize is what the winner of a race gets. What do Christians who cross the finish line get? They get the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means resurrection and glorification and holiness and everything else that is like Christ. Paul says, I recognize my sin. Wretched man that I am. I hate my sin. I don't know why I do what I do. In my spirit, I affirm the law of God, but in my flesh, I want my sin. And I hate it. So I see the finish line, and when I reach that finish line, I receive resurrection and glorification and holiness and Christ-likeness. So I'm trying to get there as quick as I can. That's why he says we have to repent. Repentance and holiness are two sides of the same coin. Now, we are saved by grace. We're not saved by works. We stay in Christ by grace through faith, not by our works. We're not saved by our repentance. But we are saved so that we can repent and turn to Christ and trust him and pursue holiness. When someone does not grow in repentance in the pursuit of holiness, there's only two possibilities. One is that they have been poorly taught and discipled. And frankly, there are many who have been poorly taught and discipled. There's a whole anti-lordship salvation movement that says you don't need to do anything. If you simply say, I trust Jesus, that's enough. And none of that agrees with Scripture. In fact, I was, I was reading in a, in a book this morning, uh, The Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur. He says, this is what they define as heresy, and I'm paraphrasing it. Believing that you trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and you turn to him as Lord. They call that heresy. That's, the scripture's full of that. So people have been poorly taught. Another part of that poor teaching is the assumption then, since we are to repent, you must repent, and if you don't repent, you'll lose your salvation. No, 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 no. That's not the issue. 
the issue is you being like Christ. Repentance and confession go together. You don't confess because if you fail to confess, God will hold your sins against you. Jesus died for those things. You confess your sins because you've been forgiven. That's why you come without fear. That's why you come even happily to confess. Not happy that you sinned. But shouldn't your misery of your sin be overwhelmed by the joy that you're forgiven? So one option if a man does not uh, or a woman does not grow in repentance in the pursuit of holiness is that they've been poorly taught and discipled. The other is that they're simply not saved. And the only way that I know to even begin telling which is which is you present them with what scripture says. Turn away from sin. Repent of your sin. Follow Christ. Pursue him. Run hard after him. Take your failures and your sins to him gladly, happily. Don't hide anything. Don't conceal anything. And if you get nonstop pushback to that, maybe you're dealing with a non-believer. Because they can't. They've not been given the hope. So we bring glory to God when instead of hiding as Adam did, we happily and obediently confess our sins. If Adam had had a clue as to who his God was, when they heard the sound of the footsteps of God walking in the garden, they would have run to him. Knowing that if they confessed, if they humbled themselves, they would receive nothing but mercy. And we bring glory to God when we agree by our repentance from sin and our pursuit of holiness that his holiness is what matters. And that his will is right and good. I urge you today to determine that you will, with God's help, confess your sins without fear. Without fear. And pursue holiness in Christ. If you'd stand, let, let's sing.